You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I'm Shailene, a librarian at the Pratt Central Library, and I want to welcome everyone who's with us either in person or virtually. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us tonight. We're thrilled to have you. The library is busy planning other wonderful poetry events for this fall and winter, and to make sure you don't miss any of them, I'd encourage you to get on our poetry event email list, uh, which you can do by signing up on the sheet on the table at the side of the room. Oh, not loud enough? No, you're good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, um, Sophia. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, tonight we're doing something really special. We are celebrating the results of our annual poetry contest. 2022 was the 11th year that we have had this contest, which is a free contest open to all Maryland residents age 18 and older. Um, this year's finalist poems dazzled me, and I'm so excited that we are going to hear those poems plus others read tonight by Caitlin Wilson, Alicia Poti, and Robert Skur. Celebrating the Poetry Contest is also a chance to marvel at the abundance of talent in our state. So how appropriate that we will also hear tonight from Grace Cavalieri, our very own State Poet Laureate. And tonight is a great time for us to appreciate Little Patuxent Review, um, whose staff serve the arts in Maryland and beyond with such grace, and who have for many years collaborated with the library on this contest. Um, we are selling copies of Little Patuxent Review also on that table at the side of the room, in addition to selling books by Grace and Robert. Um, Little Protestant Reviews head editor Chelsea Lemon Fetzer will moderate this event and is also going to read for us. Chelsea holds a BA from Sarah Lawrence College and earned her MFA in fiction at Syracuse University in 2008. She is a 2019 Rubies recipient for the literary arts and a recipient of the Maryland State Arts Council's 2022 Independent Artist Award. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in journals such as Callaloo, Tin House, Mississippi Review, and Minnesota Review. Her essay, Speck, appears in The Beijing of America, Personal Narratives About Being Mixed Race in the 21st Century. Fetzer teaches literature and creative writing at the University of Baltimore, and she serves as vice chair on the board of City Lit Project. So I'm just really grateful to everyone at Little Protection Review, and especially Chelsea, for supporting the poetry contest with their vision and talent. Please join me in welcoming Chelsea to the podium. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I just want to thank Shailene and the Pratt 
for this fantastic opportunity for Maryland poets. Um, you're really the best partner I could ask for um, through this process. It's just so wonderful to get the opportunity to judge. Um, I mean, it's a really hard job, but it's, it's so fun. We get incredible submissions, and I hope anyone who is thinking about submitting to the contest um, next time it comes up, please do that because you have a very um, welcoming and loving team on the other end. Um, I also want to thank LPR's poetry editor, who's not here, Evan Lesavoy. He doesn't like the spotlight, but um, he brings so much heart to reviewing these poems with me, um, as well as selecting poetry for LPR more broadly. Um, I also want to thank our president of the board, Brian England, and um, Liz Bobo, who are here this evening selling the summer 2022 issue, um, where you'll find all of our all of the poetry readers um, this evening are published in our summer 2022 issue. So if you like it, check it out. <laughs> um, okay, so. Our first reader was uh, one of the runners-up, Alicia Pody, who is a Maryland native and 2002 graduate of St. John's College in Annapolis. In addition to Little Patuxent Review, her poems have appeared in the Comstock Review, Hawaii Pacific Review, and the Baltimore Review. She lives in Towson with her two kids and a rescued mutt named Romeo. Welcome, Alicia. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, in an effort to, can you hear me? Everybody hear me? Okay. Uh, in an effort to preempt any vaudeville kings that might be waiting in the wings, I'm just going to sail through uh, this set without comment and finish with the poem that uh, the little Patexit review was graciously published uh, for this contest. Um, but before I do that, I want to thank everyone for coming out here um, and for the Pratt Library and for LPR for literally giving me a podium. <laughs> so um, thank you all, and without further ado. The Dance Lesson. It's autumn, Wednesday, at the Havana Club, and the floor beneath us pulses, clicks, its tawny planks, the tectonic plates that threaten to split and swallow our bodies whole. You have worn your pinstripe pants in an attempt to vanish within the crowd. For once, I don't remember my dress, but I imagine it, something dark, red, sheer, like smoke inside a Tiffany lamp or the harvest moon that hangs in the sky as our spotlight, our crown. You are new at your craft, and tonight, I am your assistant. We anticipate the steps and turns that will be our abracadabra, the movements that will bring you to me, take me away, and back again to you. The music begins, the trumpet timbales, the clave, a siren song that could steal us both. And I am nervous for you. You have not yet learned to dance. Tonight, it's spring. 
and I recall you before me, trembling, still flesh, your face as moist and pink as a pomegranate seed. <laughs> Marital property. If a mindful union is magazine-ready real estate, immaculate floor plan, million-dollar views, then our love was a facsimile of the Winchester Mansion, an exercise in softly coiled madness. Each day we jiggled new knobs, climbed staircases to nowhere, or to the clearest and bluest part of the sky. We never saw what was coming. This place was built to outrun ghosts, a dedicated funhouse for restless souls to haunt in peace, slammed doors ruefully, each bang like the last, a record skipping without reproach from the living or the dead. When the moon rose, plaintive wails pushed through paper-thin walls like nails, the heavy kind, designed to drape guilty limbs along simple frames, clean lines of lumber. Each morning, we stashed our screens in dusty corners for safekeeping. Each night, we lifted our hammers like heretics, conjoined hearts with permits of gold, stiff, bloodless, somehow still beating. When Billy Weaver was killed by a shark, Oahu, Hawaii, December 13, 1958. There were three mats, three boards, six boys, tangled red, green, and royal blue stripes. Two bobbed in repose along the lap of a sailless skiff, one stiff plank propped like an outstretched pair of bleached balsa arms, its primitive cross signaling stop, go, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The others purled aimless beneath the December sun at the mercy of broken waves. One fell behind, resurfaced pale face between the mokalua with a feeble cry, the frantic paddle of a newly phantomed limb. My mother watched, frozen at shore as the white-capped reef flushed crimson, just like in the movies. And maybe somewhere, before that final crash delivered Billy to his fate, a warning bled from the ocean's edge, too. Sharp teeth showing at the corners of the sky, the eerie metronome of pulsing tides, glint and splash of slick, steely, fin flash of black eyes beneath water, wind cracking the taut skin of the sea, a wraith whispering, you are just a visitor here. Omens. On the way back home, a vulture has staked its claim in the road. A possum, maybe a rabbit, or even a neighbor's cat. It's impossible to tell. All that remains is entrails, fur, a smear of purple blood on asphalt. 
I slow my car to a crawl and stare. Tari Harbinger conjured out of an oil slick, feathers jutting like hex tea leaves, an obsidian beak at the end of a hooked head hooded like an executioner. I pull into the driveway, return to rubberneck the scene on foot, too late. The dark bird circles the house where I once slept, rips open storm clouds swollen with rain, vanishes into sky. Dawn Chorus Open your eyes, Mama. I roll toward the clock on my right, clinging, desperate, to the shroud that hovers six feet above before daylight breaks windows to steal dreams. He pleads into my ear, chin perched on my shoulder in the dark, a blackbird warbling at 4.30 in the morning. Mama, open your eyes. He's three years old and only knows that dying looks a lot like sleep and dead people don't wake up. He doesn't know that most exits are slow. My mother dangled between two worlds for days. She stripped her own corpse, discarded pajamas beside the drooping peonies that disguised death's smell until it finally descended heavy like a rotting apple. The Sparrow. My grandmother slumps in her wheelchair, white hair washed in the pale ochre of mourning. I cradle a bird, stunned by invisible pains in cupped hands before her. A sparrow that surrendered to the ground after three gruesome attempts at flight. She watches as feathers rustle. The time is now 6.45, and the library will be closed in 15 minutes. That's right. We will be open again tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, shall I start over? I will. All right. The Sparrow. My grandmother slumps in her wheelchair, white hair washed in the pale ochre of morning. I cradle a bird stunned by invisible pains and cupped hands before her, a sparrow that surrendered to the ground after three gruesome attempts at flight. She watches as feathers rustle, stretch, then rise again from my fingers, her eyes the color of an empty glass. Two miles across town, a hospital bed waits to be hauled away. Are you my mother? I am shards of speckled shell, petrified bones in an unraveled nest. I decide there's nothing to see here, a dead daughter, a wayward sparrow. People and birds perish against closed windows every day. What could be more natural? Nothing brings a winged creature back to life. She simply survives a crash and another and another, each result a replica of the last. What could be more scientific? Yet one day soon, she too will die, 
push out her final breath. And then, and then, and then. The acorn. No one needs to tell the acorn what happened to the oak. It already knows. That fatal bolt lives inside it with the hollowness that doomed her, with the boars that feasted on her scarred trunk from the outside in and back out again until her leaves shrunk from the sky and a condolent crew arrived one morning to cart her dead limbs away. So sorry, such a shame. And by evening, not even her stump remained, just a soft hole, a rocky cradle for savaged roots, her fresh grave hugging castoffs and coffins of clay until hardy shoots push out of their shells and turn familiar green faces impetuously toward the sun. And finally, fever. Beneath the moon above Sinai's ER7, I lie beside you in your narrow bed, counting your silent breaths, minding the line that joins you to sharp-angled machinery, dripping from one end, stained with blood at the other. One day, I'll explain how I nearly lost you to an infection we mistook for a mosquito bite, how it kindled your eye, lit your body like a furnace, your life only two years long when death first fluttered past your lashes. Tonight, I watch you sleep, sink myself deeper into sheets soaked with sweat, urine, hysteria that hangs in the air of every hospital looking for a host. You're still, impossibly tucked and tiny, like a cat contorted to catch the slimmest disappearing ray of evening sun. And if I could, I would split my womb back open for you, carefully crack the crooked seam of the scar that remains there, a locked door that once yielded to the lifeless chill of blinding white lights, that wild moment when you were tugged outside of me, the radiant darkness of my love for you left behind, but burning, brighter, hotter than before. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alicia. That was so beautiful. I loved getting to just lavish in your poems for all that time. It was lovely. Um, so we're going to sort of take pauses in between each of the finalists and winners just so that you guys get really excited. You have to wait. <laughs> I am going to read a few poems before our next finalist. Um, it's finally happening. I have to do this. So excuse me. <laughs> it's happened. Um, 
it's such an interesting process being at home and thinking about what poems to read to you all. Um, and what I tend to do is just like print out a bunch and then just sort of decide in the moment, which is probably terrible, but I'm going to do it. I'll start with this one, inspired by my grandfather. Paradise. Nothing illuminates our conversation better than the burned out bulb hung above our kitchen table, obscuring the argument, the politic topic. It waits for replacement, an energy efficient diode. Auntie's boyfriend warns, the scientists know it's too late. Lucky to be me, says Auntie. Optimism was never any good in bed. Plus, what can hug us tighter than Armageddon? Papa's looking forward to it. Already fixed himself something to eat. Now he's sleeping in his chair. If you want to hear about paradise, wake Papa up. Here's the sort of thing I would dare when I was a kid. Papa, what happens when someone falls on a paradise rock and breaks their ankle? One tree of life isn't enough for a thousand, for 144,000 people. How about when the fruit is eaten up? And what about those paradise mosquitoes? Do they cancel it out? Now he's 91. So all I say when he reads me the promise in his Bible again is, don't forget to look for me in paradise. I'll be wearing fuchsia sequin pants. He pats my hand, though we both know it's for sure. I'm not going to make the cut. Time to finish the dishes. I could believe <clears throat> if you told me it will end up more like this. Warm ocean in a sink, the pots shiny again, a long bath, a bottomless drink, water as the home thing, after and before, like it was under the dock of the first time you felt your mother's warm, her smile of blinding light. In his chair, Papa's sleep discovers its legs like a colt. I always believed in his velvet hand anyway, in his hug being tight enough to break a rib. Never mind paradise. I live here where sunset paints the wall with fingers of flame, defying the dim. <clears throat> and my daughters are now weaving toilet paper into the legs of chairs, to table, to chairs, white garlands pretending something to celebrate, and at times uplifted simply by the drafts we make walking past. <laughs> Um, do you ever have those things you want, those dreams that just like torture you? <laughs> I do. And this is a poem I wrote about that. If a dream. If tomorrow morning you could choose a different one, unfold it from the dresser drawer or tug it off a hanger, pinstripe, macrame, the hot pink, which dream to wear to the day job? Which for the divorce conversation? Where to show up in the one handed down from great aunt so-and-so, though it really isn't you? If strangers could see your dream. If they turned their heads while you chased your kid down MLK Jr. to notice how you pulled off the color or a seam splitting at your back. If they whispered it was not a dream they would be caught dead in. If they said it was too loud. If they had the same dream, but paid less for it. 
And if at the end of the day you could unbutton, unhitch, leave it silent at the tub's feet, no, leave it hung over the fire escape's gate for the rain to pound, for the, hur the hurricane to inhale and toss skyward, where it could open all the way like a parachute circling among feral plastics. Thank you, the bodega bags would reply by obligation. If you could sleep naked then, if you could ever be naked. <laughs> um, so it's so there's this one I will write about death and murder and you know oppression but writing and reading about parenthood is so interesting I always stop myself like that's too sensitive I don't know if I can do that um, <clears throat> but I do want to acknowledge that both of the finalists' um, poems were about parenthood and just sort of that, that connection to your child. And so inspired by those poems, I brought a few of mine. I took the leap. Um, This one's sort of about, um, I guess, that moment before I, the moment I was crossing over into parenthood, but I wasn't quite sure. I was hoping. <clears throat> My fingers unspool, a creek for you to uncover, drift toward my arms, how rivers wait and keep moving, and all at once, Hum with me, thread bones. I cannot teach you to swim, swim, uncurl, make feet to kick toward the open sea, my heart, my body, where you can realize like a sculptor in the dark, unmapped at first, then definite. Night presses harder. The pressing told me, or was it you? Be still. <laughs> Okay, in the same vein. <clears throat> Headwaters. Now that you are here, you must crawl hand over foot across the hip bones, this path of slick boulders where Mississippi is born jumping over the edge of Lake Itasca before the day's tourists. How else but to pretend mother, to take your turn among constant bruising mothers, even though just beside you, the infant river yawns, ankle deep in her cradle of smooth pebbles where children and elders wade. We've known her name for ages. No, she's already grown. Wide as clouds, running history, rewriting borderlands to escape us, cloaked under the gulf's salt tongue. How could that be when each moment she opens her eyes for the first time, when this moment she opens her eyes to find you, a reaching shaped before too much light, Body soaked and not going back, breathing, breathing the cost, breathing, breathing the miracle. Thank you. And this is the last one. So 
<clears throat> in addition to this being a special month for this reading and the celebration, this is also the month um, my first daughter turned 10, which has just been so intense. Like, I can't believe it's been 10 years um, that she's been here and that I've been a mother. And um, so I came back to this poem that I wrote the, a few months after she was born. I thought it would be good to read it tonight. Oh, I also want to mention, last night as I was putting this very daughter to bed, she looked at this little swoosh on her bookshelf and said, Enoch Pratt. <laughs> I thought that was so great. I was like, I'm so proud yes. <laughs> so she is, she is a fan of Enoch Pratt. No use asking if you'd like me to sing. You don't belong to words yet, not even to what will be your favorite songs. Your animal mouth hunts what matters more. River mouth of milk, sudden, cross my heart, electric for your suck. Is that music? No forgetting how I howled your name weeks ago, hips shook, how I howled your head down through August sunrise, our backbones unbraided, us yielding, us cry. But I think we are not yet two bodies, still one body, can we decide ourselves, can we learn our faces in the same or not, can we Someone's trying to shout a fierce block. One of those that hurts a little. Someone shut the door to the room there. Going to write until tomorrow. Someone spent this whole day looking clean. I mean, took a bath. I mean, arms just floating empty. You find a way to come even closer. Pull up my grubby t-shirt. An earth to plant your face. Sun reaches through the window to halo each one of your hairs. I say, listen, Brooklyn's going to sing you this one. Hear that horn and bellow and purr. Hear Mr. Jackson whistle above his broom. My baby, my sweet baby girl. Thank you. All right, next. Our second finalist. Robert Skur is a licensed psychotherapist and clinical supervisor in community, community psychiatry at John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. A volume of his selected poems, That Said, was published in 2018, and he's lived in Baltimore for 37 years. Come on up, Robert. Um, thank you to Shailene for organizing this and in this beautiful room and to the Pratt and thank you to Chelsea and everyone at Little Patuxent Review. I'm, this is sort of an experiment. I'm going to read a bunch of maybe a baker's dozen of very short poems. This is not a gambit to get extra applause. In, 
In fact, you might want to uh, hold your applause because the poems are very short and <laughs> otherwise uh, it'll be too much. So the first poem is called In Verse. So I'll start out with some short poems and then end with the, um, the poem that was selected as a finalist. In Verse. The one before means all the more. The last one knows what this one's for. Threshing. Not my words, which are chaff, but their gist is the grist for your mill. Winnow me, world, till just what I mean will remain to be said. In advance. Even given where I come from, it is a shock to find again how far behind I have become. Taken aback, I sprint ahead to catch myself, as if to reach the very place I never leave. This poem is called Agenda. It's heartrending, though endearing how we intend to descend to stupendous depths only to end up upended off the deep end. We so depend on splendid forms to suspend us, we pretend they must portend some rendezvous to surrender to or apprehend. And this is for the clouds Though they frequent the firmament, they are first and foremost terra firma's frailest ephemera, films frothing the formidable mountains, flimsy, forgettable, their features mere metaphors for fur, for furs, ferns, feathers, formless otherwise, failed effronteries, formulae for fragility, briefest forests of forms foregone, and but for their aforementioned frequency, no forbearance, no forgiveness should be afforded them, their far-fetched phosphorescence their own affair. Were their forte not to affirm one's own forays at forever? Looking. Though I toyed with the thought, I was taught not to look. So with nose in a book, I forsook what I sought, which was all that it took to avoid getting caught. And these are really short poems, just three lines. I still remember the silver locket of the neighbor girl who played at hypnotizing me. Driving by a well-lit coffee shop, my desire flares. And I don't even like coffee. <laughs> While I fretted over putting my toe in, the water rose above my head. The smell of perfume beneath the street light wrecked any chance I had of sobriety that night. Today, I sent my daughters to school without their coats. I wore mine, though. <laughs> the ship I hoped would rescue me 
is carefully sealed in the same bottle I put the message in. Like a difficult child, I finally calm down when I hear something truly serious. Again and again, I return to the scene of a crime I will someday have the courage to commit. It's still summer, of course, but that one cloud looks like the rake hanging in the rafters. And I learned to love the world when I learned the world could not be loved all at once. Um, two final poems, a little bit longer. This one is called Head of Orpheus. It um, takes place at the end of the Orpheus story after he's failed to rescue Eurydice from Hades and has been torn apart by the Bacantes and his head is floating across to the island of Lesbos. So this is head of Orpheus. The ordered waves sound over me like strings, I the plectrum. Purple kelp garlands my brow. My hair bobs like a mass of drifting wood. My eyes are two flat stones, two like sunlight glistening off the rippling crests to sink. Brine sloshes through my mouth and gladdens me. At last, I found my element between the sky's gray matter and the hollow body of the sea. The song we give the earth is memory, death, the tide that buoys the spendrift words. The chambers of my mind recall her now, ripped from sentience faster than forgetting. The blackness of her hair flamed after her against the lesser darkness of the night. My head was severed from my body then, and I became a man without regret. Yet remorse perfects my wind-burned lips into a dolphin smile. The shrieks of seagulls wash her darting footsteps from my conch shell ears. I stare for days at jostling disks of cloud, imagining a distant narrow beach, a blinding neck of sand, red grass, the trees like stringless dulcimers, a figure watching as my skull navigates the riptide swells. Thank you. And the last poem, um, When in Baltimore. Um, I guess one little obscure allusion, the third syllable of Baltimore, M-O-R-E, has the same letters as Rome. When in Baltimore, last night when I went out, after hiding from an all-day freezing wind, the stars should have been ice-sharp, pixelated points in highest resolution, but to my aging sight were only blurs. The seven sisters of the Pleiades might as well have been nine or one. My sight would have smeared the moon had there been one, but it was dark, and the only glow came from my phone, which I held up close to see the photos my daughter had texted me from Rome. Sights in a city I might never see. She called me in the afternoon from outside the Colosseum to wish me happy birthday. Yes, she missed Baltimore, but the pasta, 
Not to mention the art yesterday on her way to class at Caravaggio all to herself was to die for. We joked how Baltimore was just like Rome, two mere syllables and an anagram apart, each one built on seven hills, though when I counted ours just now, I came up with nine. And when you turn a corner either place, you are met with heaping ruins. The eternal city has nothing over us, I told her. I thanked her for her call, but Italy was her gift to me. Perhaps the greatest pleasure, along with youth, life has to offer. Or so said Henry James, who knew. And who knew just how bright images can come to one whose child first travels to Rome. I pocketed the phone, breath fogged my glasses, and I walked the rest of the way around the block. Thank you, Robert. I love that. All right, now you have to wait again before the winner. But this isn't going to hurt because our next reader is Grace Cavalieri, Maryland's 10th Poet Laureate. Her new books, yes, are Grace Art, Poems and Paintings, and the Secret Letters of Madame de Stael. She founded and produces The Poet and the Poem for Public Radio, now from the Library of Congress, celebrating 45 years on air. Um, this is the coolest part. This series of several hundred poets will be shot to the moon in the Lunar Codex in 2022 as the first podcast series on the moon. Grace's forthcoming book is The Long Game, Selected and New Poems. Um, and please also check out the back for both Robert and Grace's books after the reading because you will be able to find them there. Grace, come up. My, ser my series went up to the moon in July, and it landed in the ocean of storms, in the dust, with Andy Warhol and Bach. I thought pretty good traveling companions, but I didn't like the idea of my poems, all my nice poets getting dusty, and I don't know who will ever hear them. Well, um, I'm going to start reading a poem about a woman and read a couple of poems about women. And the first one is about Athena who is my hero, my hero goddess, and this is the way it goes. Athena tells the truth. She doesn't know any better. That's the good thing about being mythological. She does not encounter or counter. She just is. She's smart because she says no one ever solved a problem by being dumb. Everyone forgets her, but B-plus students studying antiquity, and they'll forget her too. Athena was not what they expected, tilting away from the backstory of Greece. But if parallels with today must be drawn, then lift her out of sleep. Bring her back in four-inch heels and purple fingernails. Or put her in my body. I'm not afraid to be forgotten. 
She needs everyone who ever died to give her new feelings to feel. We need goddesses of wisdom more than ever. But please do not attack her because she wins at archery and let us forgive her for still wanting romance. The next woman uh, I'm going to read is um, Big Mama Thornton, a different, another goddess of mine. And uh, I was lucky enough to be co-founder of a radio station in Washington, D.C. in 1977, WPFW. And a lot of jazz and music stars came through at that time, and I got to meet so many. It was so cool. And this is my remembrance, a true story about Big Mama Thornton. Last time I saw her, she wasn't so big, actually. She was downright skinny, singing the final time in Washington, D.C. Backstage, she drank a quart of milk, mixed equal parts with gin. Seagram, she told me. Then she got the idea. Could I contact the Seagram's people, and then she could advertise for them, and they'd like her for drinking a full quart a day their gin? I said, no, I didn't think so, and I didn't think the milk people would like it so much either. She still felt bad about Elvis stealing Hound Dog the way he did, even though she was much too much of a lady to say so. Once she talked about it long ago, before she started milk with gin, I guess the drink left a sweet taste in her mouth. And uh, I'm, if you save the, the applause, if you clap, I think I have to go home. I'll think it's over. <laughs> so don't do it. Um, now we're going to go to another hero of mine, my grandmother, who was the first feminist I ever knew. And she had seven children and started the first Italian restaurant in Trenton, New Jersey in like 1929. She had, had, and she had no idea how to do this, I'm sure, except she could make spaghetti sauce. But she did it, and it was called um, the Venice Restaurant. Grandmother for Graziella Zoda. What is this purpose of visits to me twice since you've died? Downstairs near a wood stove, I hear you in motion, always working. A long silken dress, tight sleeves at the elbow for wide shoulder for free movement. When we were young, you didn't visit. You never baked a cake that I remember or babysat or held me in your lap. You were in a man's part of town, running a man's business, calling the world to order. Six children behind you, raised single-handed in your large house. You were moving, always moving. When I kept losing things like my parents, my children, money, my time, and health, why did you appear in my room with gifts painted red, yellow, blue, brilliant colored toys, what essential fact did you want me to know? That the body is the essence of the spirit and so must be in motion? Now that I've lost my foothold, my direction, my way, what is your message, strong spirit, 
strong grandmother? What is the meaning of your dream presence? A bright clock shaped like a train, simply that it moves? This is so true. She would appear in my dreams with this clock uh, shaped like a train, and now I know. Get up and move. Um, since I took you back into the century, I'm going to stay there for a bit because you know the past never went anywhere at all. And Faulkner said the past isn't even past. So um, I'm going to go back a bit and I'm going to, to read a poem um, about 1942. And it's called Three O'Clock. In those days, um, there were executions of prisoners in the Trenton Penitentiary every month. And different people, all the guards, each guard would have a choice, a time to have to electrocute. It was really very medieval, and incarceration is really a great topic right now in today's society. But um, this was, I think, quite as bad. Three o'clock, 1942. Elaine's father was a guard at the Trenton State Penitentiary. Once in a while, I forget how often, she couldn't come out to play because it was her daddy's turn to pull the switch and watch a prisoner die. He'd stay inside feeling sick, but why the Dutch family had to close the shades, I don't know. Or why, even if we knocked politely, her mother sent us away saying, Elaine can't come out today. The rest of us little girls sat on my porch in cool dresses. Three o'clock, mothers were in the kitchen setting spoons. There were iced drinks and cookies, powdered sugar, a confection of air. Not even fathers were coming home to break the silence. The only sound is a boy on the tracks who has caught a small animal and tramps through the woods carrying a cardboard cage, three holes for air. The girls ask whose turn it is to make up a story. We visit bright imagined countries and in this way travel beyond swinging chairs, white railings, a summer porch. At three o'clock, God mutes the trees to listen. The only sound is a thrashing, the biting and scratching as the boy falls, the rustling and scrambling of a small animal breaking free. Um, going to read uh, The Hot Dog Factory. This is another one from my childhood, and this was 1937. The hot dog family. Now, you must imagine, we were children without television, without anything, really, but uh, no stimulation. Our mothers didn't drive in those days, and um, there was very little to do. So this was a big day in Trenton. <laughs> the hot dog factory. Of course, now children take it for granted, but once we watched boxes on a conveyor belt sliding by, magically filled and closed, packed and wrapped, we couldn't get enough of it. Running alongside the machine in kindergarten, Miss Haynes walked our class down Stuyvesant Avenue, then up Prospect Street to the hot dog factory. Only the girls got to go as the boys were too wild. 
We stood in line wiggling with excitement as the man talked about how they made hot dogs. Then he handed us one and Jan dropped hers. So I broke mine in half. This was the happiest day of our lives. Children whose mothers didn't drive and had nowhere to go but school and home. To be taken to that street to watch the glittering steel and shining rubber belts moving, moving meats ready-made. I wish I could talk with Jan, recalling the miracle and thrill of the hot dog factory when she was alive before it all stopped. Bright lights, glistening motors, spinning wheels. Um, as I grew up, to junior high school number three, I met my husband, and we had a marriage of 60 years. And he was a naval aviator and uh, died uh, just a few years ago. And uh, this poem is for him. It's called Safety. When you were in the ninth grade and I was in the seventh, you were a crossing guard keeping order at junior high school number three. No one was disobedient when you wore that wide yellow strap across your chest. No one bruised another, caused trouble, or so much as threw a stone. No one cracked a joke about you, a man in uniform. How did that yellow vest feed your soul to let you know someday you'd fly a plane just to feel the power of a strap across your chest? What liberation to know how to be in charge, strong and capable, flying through gunfire and lightning again and again to come back to me. Although we were young, you were 15 and I was 13, since then I've never known the world without you. Now I must be 12. And the next uh, poem is self-explanatory. It's called Mechanical Physics. I never knew how to put two pieces together. Say the garden hose, for example, its nozzle undetectable. I flooded the new coffee pot because the sections didn't quite match. Can you imagine how hard it was to convince myself I could do anything with more than one panel, I didn't even try. Ikea sent furniture in boxes, all March 44. I could feel the lessons yet to learn, the escape from reason. I could feel my human failure before UPS left the house. <laughs> now, in the lightness of the last of this day, how do I know who will hold me at sunset. I cannot make the alive and the dead parts come together as we once were. I cannot match the seams, square the ending. I will end, um, I gave my students the uh, prompt to write a poem about the little child inside of them. And I feel that I have to do everything they do. So this is called Little Little Girl. 
And for writers, I do ask you to write a poem about your child, and you will discover a lot of things you didn't know. This is called Little, Little Girl. Take my hand. The human ear can hear the heart's octaves. Listen, you are probing your life without mercy from the ruined foam of memory. I promise you disappointed no one. You intruded on no one's happiness, not with illness or sadness or needs. And your life, thick with fear, was resolved with the prosperity of the imagination. You let down your guard and became the calligrapher of your life with words and color. Look at my life at this moment, who you are now, what you have become. I have not lost my purse or missed the bus or broken a promise. Look here, the pain is gone. You did not disappoint anyone, especially not me. I am making you a poem to show I will never disappoint you. Thank you. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you so much, Grace. Okay, our final reader, the winner of the Pratt Poetry Contest, Caitlin Wilson, holds an MFA in poetry from Virginia Commonwealth University. Her work has appeared in Entropy, Filling Station, Iron Horse Literary Review, McNeese Review, Rhino, Rogue Agent, and Wildness. I just like I love the sound of all those journals' names in juxtaposition. <clears throat> she was a 2021 Sewanee Writers Conference contributor and recipient of VCU's 2021 and 2020 Graduate Poetry Awards. She has also been honored with the 2019 AWP Intro Journals Project Award and the 2018 Henrietta Spiegel Creative Writing Award and a Jimena Porter Literary Prize for Poetry. She was previously the managing editor of Blackbird. Caitlin Wilson. All right, thank you all for being here and staying until the last reader. Um, and thank you to Little Protection Review and Chelsea and Shailene and Pratt. Um, it's been a really great experience. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Okay. Um, I am going to actually start with the winning poem. Um, and it begins with an epigraph that I thought was so strange and that's kind of what the poem was born out of. Um, and the epigraph reads, quote, the Chesapeake Bay is surprisingly shallow. A six foot tall woman can wade through over 700,000 acres of the bay without wetting her hat, a rest stop factoid between DC and New York City. Watershed. She finds herself walking, sediment kicked up in a cloud, bay grass curled like slippers around her heels, nettles sharp and ghostly, hat like a feather on the water without dampening, there with the lonely herons, all morning wading through golden mist, all night moving on the surface, with the Jesus bugs and blue crabs nocturnal grazing, James to Rappahannock, Potomac to Patuxent, Severn to Patapsco, from Susquehanna 
to chop tank. Maybe she launched herself from a boat ramp, slid down an eroding bank, shed dryness to move like the northern water snake through the ragged shape of the bay. The quiet frog song of mile number 400,602 pulses in her ears from creek to inlet, punctuated by the striped bass that leap and land, echoes skipping across the river. Rain tremors across the magathy, pebbling the water's skin. She shelters beneath a downed tree along shore, lopsided in the current. Mosquitoes swarm in the reedy mud beneath her knees. Minnows and blennies dart in and out of her pockets, their bodies a quick, shining language. Her cry is the cry of the osprey. Later, sun-dazzled, she bends to the molting crabs and oyster shoals beneath the swill of blue-green algal bloom and poisonous mahogany tide. The dead zones abrade her skin. The fish kills bob like a crab trap field. Cold-blooded perch scales knock against her neck. What water map compels her? The shore is split. She has two sides. Stoic. Rain for days now. Autumn floods along the bay coast. Every hour fuzzy with indefinable light. Boundaries begin to slip. One could wonder. Trees front as telephone poles down the block. Denuded figures not living now as we knew them. My horoscope references the curiosity of the Stoics. Inquisition a connecting thread, not delineation between the asker and the answers that may wound one into something new. Sunlight slow dissolves the clouds, shocks the cold mirror of each puddle. Would that I could speak through them to some other self who knew the answers. Would that I could. Uh, this next poem is self-explanatory, but I think it's also very similar to the poems on the moon, um, which I was excited to learn about just this evening. Hot Ticket. In a small, crowded beige room with an image of the sun on a screen, I learned they had just launched a satellite into the sun. Or not the sun per se, but closer than any man-made thing has ever been less than four million miles from the surface, once it completes a seven-year drift, of which it has, at this moment, completed three. Still, they call it the mission to touch the sun. A shield remains at all times between sun and satellite, rotating during each revolution. In a PR stunt called Hot Ticket, NASA offered to include submitted names in a microchip, aboard the satellite, so one could send one's name into the sun. I found it macabre and enticing. I was too late to submit my own. At some point, because of the helpful gravity that allows study proximity, the satellite will melt with the heat of the encroaching corona. And still, I'm not certain that indicates touching, 
more so that the creators of the undertaking were well aware that every name on board would be destroyed short of the true destination. Uh, this next poem is in honor of September, which we are very close to. Um, it's about medieval wine. Uh, and I just want to note that wine, before we discovered sulfites, spoiled very quickly without the preservatives. Um, and I also use the term uh, solarium, which is a cold storage room um, in the bottom of most cathedrals. The wine press. September. This crushing month sets us to treading in deep vats until sour jewels of juice run from the wine press, the runnel stained dark now, but unquenchable. Time has compressed, slipping into a strangling winter. God, when I asked that my cup runneth over, I didn't expect the granting to be temporary or the gr grapes to shrivel fist-like around their seeds so that I must supplement the paltry yield, something issuing from within me, so much like blood, for a moment I could fool myself, fool everyone. How long could such fooling last? How long until the harvest spoils in the cold monastic solarium? But look, bats flicker in the blue patchwork of the sky. They disappear when the rain begins. I refuse to turn on a lamp. The page grays until black as an open cask. Words hide away. Medieval monks made wine from vine husbandry upon Catholic land, supplied the drink for daily rites and meals, claimed a cure for the ill and frail. The cities and towns daily drunk on it. Honey it, flower it, anything to cover the sour rankness. Winter, please. Leave me wine, more precious than oil or ink. Here, only some words, some anointment before I drink. Uh, and this next poem is inspired by Beowulf. If you can't tell, I kind of pull from a little bit of everything. Um, and the the character of uh, Helak, um, there are some scholars who believe that Mastodon bones um, might have inspired the mythology of monsters and giant warriors, um, because without the heads, they might have resembled human bones. Um, so... From the Book of Monsters of Various Sorts. 1. In the old epoch, the waters never touched this once prairie, green muse, a river delta, with inhabitants unaware, ungrateful, beautiful mastodon, and not long later, homo sapiens. Its earthen tombs, airtight sand, which safe kept the bones like a vault. Collagen marrow whittled away to bear the brittle frames, dark, vacant halls. Still later, water arrived and split the land, and man began to war, and with war the vaults were filled. Strata of the dead, 
clear to the living until storms intermix femur and scapulae. Two, millennia pass like that. Sweet rain sweeps the roof. Myth tells of a warrior king slain in this split, a man formidable. And lo, in the place of his death, men did find a giant's bones. Headless, the chamber of the skull carried away on waves, or when a sword trophied it. The bones aligned in monstrous form. How terrible to dream the bones of a man might make him monstrous, as shed skin suggests a snake. Three, unveiled construct of an erroneous man. There you are, laying where I assembled you, pale suggestion of yourself in the quiet disintegration of my memory. Where did I find this knuckle this jaw porous and curved. Storyteller, these bones do not belong to you, but how well they suit your myth, its looming pattern, unslayable. And one more. Um, this one is inspired by Ovid's Metamorphosis. Unto untold Ovid, the God Speaks. Yesterday, I made you into a garland. I pulled you from the ground and tucked you behind my ear. It seemed a good idea at the time, but impulse twists even a god. My hair smelled sweet for days, before bittering like smoke from half-dried sage. Your petals fall upon my toes. I sweep them up with lifted arms in a little dance, hand over fist, they fall and fall. When I made you flower, I told everyone I felt sadness. So they sang me dirges and painted vases. This one filled, then overflowed with boiling grief. I ladled the broth over you in daily ritual. I weep in my chariot, at the bacchanals, in flowery bowers, at the underworld gates. I have dug plots, but none was ever big enough to hold you even contorted. I have scalded the soil with what I know now is rage, not sorrow. Your body withered to a sprout, and I have left you there for everyone to see. A god can't take back what they've done. What I mean to say is stop growing. The body turned into a stem cannot be flesh again. In this garden I pluck my golden lyre, spade-like with bladed strings. Crocus and larkspur yawn with yellow mouths, their pollen whispering across my cheeks as if to reach my tongue. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caitlin, and congratulations to all of you. Um, you should feel really proud, but also really deserving. Um, I was just really, really moved by your work. So now we'd like to take a little time. I think we still have time for a QA. and a um, If anyone would like to ask a question to any of our readers, this would be a time to do that. 
And, um, and I think there's a mic over there. If you could um, use that one so that everyone can hear you, including those who are attending from home. Yes, sir. Congratulations. I wonder uh, if you have a favorite line that you would share, or either a poem, could be your own. If it's a poem, briefly, why? Thank you. Everybody. <laughs> I will uh, jump in. I have a, another poem by Robert Creeley that says, things come and go, and that's it. That says a lot. Too. Say it again. Things come and go. Then left them. That's Robert Cruz. Thank you. I think also if you can use the mic, it would be helpful if you're comfortable with that. Let's see, maybe uh, the poet William Brown. Um, I watch how beautifully two trees stand together, one against one, not touching, not awareness. We would try these. You're always wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, mine would be uh, Charles Baudelaire, uh, which, pardon me, I'm looking for French. Le femelle a du niveau de trois chandelles, crépitez la bédou venaissance de la which translates to. Uh, the dazzled mayfly flies towards you, O candle, crackling and burning, says, bless this place. I do not have a line. I don't have a line memorized like everyone else. Um, but I really like the Dueno Elegies by Rilke, um, which are kind of a poem cycle. Uh, the eighth is probably my favorite, and it, it ends with something like um, forever taking me when the poet is sort of turning their back to, to everything that had come before in the poem. So that stands out, um, but I don't have it memorized. <laughs> Are there any other questions? We have a question online. So oh, great. I'm going to ask it. I'm going to pretend to be this online person. Thank you. Um, has there been a collection or a poet that you've read, that you've read recently that has inspired recent works of yours? Mm -hmm. um, I've been reading all the works of Ada. Is this an amplifying? Mm -hmm. I've been reading the works of Ada Limon, our, our new U.S. poet laureate. And I read all her books um, in the past 
I'll hop in and because you stole <laughs> and rightfully so. Her poetry is amazing. Ocean Bong is another poet that I've been reading. A lot of his metaphors are just magical. Um, I love any poet that is somehow able to capture those metaphors and those similes in a way that is just entirely unexpected, and yet when you read it, you think to yourself, why didn't I think of that? It, it somehow resonates so deeply. Um, so those are two modern poets that have been, and Louise Gluck, I think is ever, ever green in terms of modern poets that influence my work, or at least I could hope. Um, I'll give a call out to a almost forgotten Baltimore poet, but whose name is up on the wall there, Rosette Woodward Reese, um, whose poems are all of a piece and very beautiful and deserves to have a collective edition someday, which Maybe I'd like to do. <laughs> I want to shout somebody out. Dennis Smith. Um, yes. <laughs> they are one of my very, very, very favorite poets, both the way they work with form and also um, just the perspective and subject matter they take on. Um, I especially love the collection Don't Call Us Dead. It's just, I read it every year. I, I teach it because I love it so much. And the responses and conversations that it inspires, I find to be really important and powerful. So Dennis Smith, if you hadn't heard of them, please find them. Are there any other questions? Yes, did you? Oh, I guess I just saw a wiggle. Hi, All right, well, I'm going to pass the mic back to Shailene. Thank you all so much for your attention and just your support. <laughs> Thank you, Chelsea. Such a great host, hostess. Um, and I want to—it's—it's it's almost time to say final thank you and goodbye. But I just want to take a moment to um, make sure everybody knows that we have a broadside um, that is free to you all while supplies last on the on the table at the side of the room there. Um, and um, Andrew Klein, my colleague in the marketing department here, who's actually with us tonight in the corner back there, um, designed the these broadsides, and each of them is unique, so you can take one that speaks to you, um, and that way you'll be able to take um, Caitlin's beautiful poem home with you. And um, I also just want to encourage everyone again to purchase copies of the Little Patuxent Review summer issue where you can revisit and re-savor um, Caitlin's, Alicia's, and Robert's gorgeous um, finalist poems. 
And we do, um, as I previously mentioned, also have Grace Grace's book, some of her books, and um, we have Robert's book also for sale on that that table. So the broadside is free. Um, the other books are um, uh, we are asking um, some money for, but they are a wonderful way to re to re experience some of the delights of this reading, which has been really. Um, special to me. Um, it's always great if you can have the visual experience, you know, in solitude as well as hearing the poems out loud, I think. Um, so, yeah, finally, I just want to say thank you um, to Caitlin Wilson, Grace Cavalieri, Alicia Poti, Robert Skur, and Chelsea Lemon Fetzer for being part of this celebration and for the gift of your poems. Um, which are also wonderful in in such distinctive and different ways. Um, and I want to thank our ASL interpreter. And Chelsea, I want to thank you again for emceeing. And most of all, I want to thank all of you for spending time with us this evening. And I hope that um, you'll feel, feel free to linger and purchase um, books. Um, but um, when you go, um, I hope you stay safe and um, have a wonderful night. Thank you. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.